Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's holy inspired word back to the book of Ruth. This morning we will look at Ruth chapter 2. Now this has been really difficult, by the way, because there is way too much content to attempt to do the book of Ruth in four sermons. We are going to do that um, uh, to get the big picture, but keep in mind, this is big picture. There is a whole lot of goodies uh, in here that we are not going to be able to get to. Now, like the book of Jonah that we just finished, uh, here in the book of Ruth, the, the Hebrew uh, is presented in a very specific way, once again, to capture our imaginations and to, uh, to be funny, uh, almost to the point of absurdity, in order to arrest our attention and to get us to really focus in on some things. So what I'm going to do this morning, uh, like I did in Jonah, I'm not going to read the ESV this morning. I'm going to read a combination of the New Living Translation with some of uh, my own translation decisions that, by the way, you will find in, in people who know Hebrew. So um, they're not, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything original here. Um, but I'm, I'm going to put it uh, in expressions that are going to grab your attention, and they are meant to. Um, I'm going to begin back in chapter 1 uh, and then read through chapter 2. In the days when there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. In that day, verse 19, when Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. Instead, call me Mara which means bitterness. For the Lord Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me pleasant one when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, a noble man who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, by sheer luck, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And wouldn't you know it, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. 
Then Boaz asked his foreman, who, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me at this very morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few moments rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting? Follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I can continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and then Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all that she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I work with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He he is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. This is wonderful, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, not not only this story of compassion and generosity, but more than that, your provisions and protection for your people and for the world that the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would be brought to its fulfillment and that the Savior would come. Help us to see these greater realities that lead us to embody those realities as the world continues to watch for the advent of our Savior. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There are two jokes that have stuck with me my entire life that I heard in church as a child growing up that for some reason has just sat with me. One, I'm sure you've heard both of them. The one, the grandson goes to, goes to church with his grandfather, and grandson hasn't spent a lot of time at church, so he has a lot of questions about what's going on, what's happening in the service, and, and the son makes comments about how much the pastor is moving his hands. And he's like, what does it mean when the pastor lifts his hands up? And he's like, oh, well. That means he's blessing us on behalf of God. Oh, what does it mean when he folds his hands? Oh, well, he's praying for us. He's praying on our behalf, you know, to God. And oh, what does it mean when he when he does this? And what does it mean when he does that? I, he's helping us to know when to stand and when to sit. Well, what does it mean when he starts taking his watch off and he puts it on the pulpit? The grandfather says, "Not a not a thing." <laughs> He ain't going to look at that the rest of the service. Now, as pertinent as that may seem to some of you in this church, it's the other joke that, that is very helpful with us with understanding what's going on in the book of Ruth. And that is that other joke that, that I heard as a kid as there was this, this guy and, he, and, and being someone who grew up on the coast, grew up going through hurricane after hurricane, you know, you're, you know, you're used to this idea of you've got to watch out for the storms. You've got to be aware and you've got to have a plan and be ready to, to execute that plan. And the joke is that there was this guy who decided that because he was a Christian and because, you know, God was his God, he didn't need to plan. And he didn't need to, to store up food in case there was flooding. He didn't need to do anything prepared ahead of time to deal with things. He was just going to trust God. And then as the storm came in and the water started rising, he started realizing his house was flooding. And so he, he needed to get, you know, to somewhere drier. So he, 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 uh, he climbed up, you know, uh, upstairs to get out of, of the water. And as he was climbing upstairs, he was praying, Lord, please send me help. The next thing you know, this, this guy comes by in a, in a little little one of those flat-bottom boats with a little uh, engine on the back. And he's like, hey, do you need some help? You know, get on. You know, I'm getting people out of here. 
Ah, no, I'm trusting God. He's going he's gonna to save me. And, and so then the waters are rising higher, and he, he has to get outside of the house altogether. And, and then, you know, another boat comes by, a bigger boat, a stronger boat. And, and, hey, do you need some help? Get on. I'm getting people and getting them out of here. And they, ah, oh, no, no. I follow God, and I'm trusting him. He's going he's gonna to save me. Then he ends up on the roof. And the waters are continuing to rise. And then this, this rescue helicopter, and we've all seen those shots, right, of the Navy or the Coast Guard flying in and dropping the basket down. And the guy's like, come on, take my hand. I'll get you out of here. And, and the guy's like, no, no, I'm trusting God. God's going to save me. Well, then he drowns. Gets to heaven. God, why didn't you save me? And God says, well, I sent a boat. I sent a bigger boat. I sent a helicopter, and you just kept saying no. This is what's going on in the book of Ruth. To put it in more theological terms. When we look at, the, when we look at Advent, when we look at Christmas, amidst all the lights, amidst all the decorations, amidst all the fun and the joy and the gifts, And all that is going on, at its most fundamental level, what we have is God in the manger. God has become a baby. God has taken on flesh. God has come in in human form in the most humblest of states that you can be, and that is an infant, totally dependent on someone else taking care. And who is it that has come and, and is in that manger? It is the one who, who dwells in the high and the holy. The one who is exalted and lifted up and yet who comes to dwell with the lowly, as we read from Isaiah 57, in order to lift the lowly out of their low estate and to give them a share and a portion, a participation in his exaltation. That's the theology. Practically speaking, what this means is that God is constraining all of heaven and earth. God is constraining all of creation to the new heavens and the new earth through the birth of a baby. Sometimes it gets really easy to get so theological that we lose sight of what's really going on. And that is God likes to use what what appears to be low, what appears to be weak, what appears to be inconsequential in using that to accomplish his eternal purposes and plans. In Ruth chapter 1, what we have found is that God used a rumor. A rumor to begin the steps of protecting the promised lineage of the promised seed. The Savior of Genesis 3 that was promised that would come and be born of a woman 
that seed is under threat. And that seed is under threat because Elimelech, who is in that lineage, has chosen not to humble himself under God's correction, but instead to leave the promised land and to look for, for the joys and pleasures of earthly blessing in the land of Moab. And, and he stays there to the point that his sons marry Moabite women. He's not just trying to get away from the famine. Maybe that was motivating him at first, but now he is happy in Moab. He is, uh, he is enjoying life in Moab. His sons have daughters, uh, have wives in Moab. But then he dies. And then his sons die. And Ruth, uh, or Naomi is not wrong to say, I'm bitter. Look what has happened to me. As I said last week, we don't know if she was actively participating in Elimelech's uh, disobedience or if she was the victim of his disobedience. What we know is that regardless of if she was actively participating or not, she is the one bearing the fruit of what has happened. And she is bitter. She is an old woman. She cannot have more children. And she lives in a world where they don't have those safety nets that are built into to our society today. But what, what is true for her in terms of what she's emotionally experiencing, the heaviness and the fear, she has also lost sight that God has also provided her. Provided her a daughter-in-law who has promised to cling to her, to leave the God of Chemosh behind in Moab and to join herself to Yahweh. To submit herself to Yahweh, to, to move with, with Naomi back to the promised land and, and to serve her till the day that she dies. This is her promise. But because of the bitterness and because of the fear, Naomi is not able to recognize that God is already blessing her. She's not able to recognize that with the, the rumor that bread has come back to Bethlehem, that bread has come back to the house of bread, that God is already taking steps to change her situation and that re hope is being restored for her even though she is not able to recognize it yet. And that is because she's not looking for those everyday, common, hidden ways in which God manifests his care for his people and the ways in which God accomplishes his purposes through what seems to be small, trivial, and insignificant. Now in chapter 2, what happens is we are left with, with a couple of questions. Naomi says that, that she has shown up empty. Is she going to be filled? 
In chapter 1, she prayed for God to bless her daughter-in-laws with, with husbands and a good life. The assumption is that from Naomi is that they have to stay in Moab for that to happen. But instead, Ruth clings to her and goes with her into the promised land where it would seem most definitely now that that's not going to happen. She is a Moabite woman. And, and that, in this context, doesn't only mean that she is considered a foreigner. She is from that land that refused to give bread to Israel as they had left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. They had been re- they, the Moabites refused to give food, refused to give comfort. They refused to do anything nice for the Israelites. And the Israelites had the perspective then, well, fine. You don't want to help us? Well, we'll take that same attitude towards you. And there was this deep animosity between the Israelites and the Moabites. Moab was the people group that, that was the product of the immoral union that took place between Lot and one of his daughters. Moab is considered just the the very fruit of wickedness. And as a Moabite woman, she would have been associated with that mother of the Moabite people. She's that kind of woman. And she's from that people that hated us and put us in jeopardy. She was not just a foreigner. She's a very specific type of foreigner that would have been hated. So can she leave the false god of Chemosh, join herself to the one true god, Yahweh, go with her mother-in-law into the promised land, and can she, as a Moabite woman, find fulfillment in this life? Can she find a husband? And can she, with that new husband, can she begin to have her own children? Can she be restored? And, and, and the question then also is, well, can Naomi be restored? Because Naomi is the one who is also completely broken over all of this. Her husband died. Her sons died. Her lineage is literally hanging by a thread. And even with her returning to the promised land, because her husband and her sons are dead, she is not going to be able to come in and have a claim to take back over the family property. She is coming empty for sure, and she has no promise that her emptiness will be fulfilled. Do you see what is going on here at this, at this, at this individual and family level of Naomi and Ruth, what we have is a broader picture of the needs of God's people and the needs of the nations. The seed promised in Genesis 3 that we know comes through this line, that seed is in jeopardy. Israel doesn't have a king, and as a result, they are a wicked people. They need a king. The nations need the promised seed. 
And so what's going to happen? Within this, within this big, bigger picture of what is happening, we now enter into to Ruth chapter 2, and, and we, we, we are caught off guard. If you're a reader from, uh, from the original audience, you would have been struck by what is happening. Bethlehem at this period in time is not known for being a great place. Bethlehem is, is a place where a Levite you know, came from who sold himself to become a personal priest, and as long as you paid him the right thing, he would do whatever you wanted. Bethlehem was that place that was known for being harsh to women. It was not a safe place for women. It wasn't a safe place for anyone, really. And yet, in the midst of this Bethlehem of Ephratah, we are told at the very beginning of this chapter that there is a noble man who comes from Bethlehem. And his name is Boaz. And he is in the same lineage as Elimelech. Now, for you and me, it's like, oh, that sounds like some genealogy stuff, you know, big deal. But for Naomi and for the original audience, the first word that would come to their minds is hope. This is hope. Hope began to, to, to become restored for Naomi in the fact that she has the gift of Ruth to, to be with her. And hope is beginning to be restored because bread has come back to Bethlehem. And hope is beginning to be restored because Naomi has returned to Bethlehem. She has left the emptiness of Moab and has returned to the promised land where she can find blessing from the Lord. Hope is beginning to be restored. And now... Hope above hopes, there is a good, noble man in Bethlehem who is within the family lineage, which means there is a chance that Naomi can be restored. And so what you have in in Ruth chapter 2 is this extensive description of the compassion and generosity of Boaz, who becomes a patron benefactor and protector of Ruth and through Ruth also of Naomi. And the description, one act after another, is that this noble man is, is a righteous man who, who is one who knows the law of God, who lives according to the law of God, and is, is willing to go beyond just what the law requires into granting unmerited favor and blessing to someone who clearly doesn't deserve it. There was a law that the poor were uh, to be allowed to have the harvest that's on the corners of the field. And so for someone like Naomi, that if they had lost a husband, if they had lost sons, if they had lost rights to the land, that the people who still had land, what they were to do was they were to limit how much of their own field they kept for themselves. That they were to leave the corners for the poor. 
so that the poor who were still dignified as those created in the image of God and members of the covenant could still have something. In addition, there was also a law that said if you, within the process of harvesting things, if you leave some behind because you forget it, you're not allowed to go back and get it. You just have to leave it there, and the poor are allowed to have that as well. But the way that it worked was it's not just for the poor. It was supposed to also include the foreigner. But you and I both know it's one thing for the Lord to tell us to live righteously in loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's another thing to actually do it. And you can have every law on the book, but unless there is someone willing to follow that law, the poor and the foreign are still utterly and completely vulnerable in this context. And by the way, what kind of context is it? There is no king, and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Naomi has a legitimate fear. Ruth has a legitimate fear. And yet, there is this one who is willing not only to do what the law requires. He is ready to do so much more. Now, as it's presented to us, Ruth shows her naivete and her ignorance, even with regards to the provisions of the law, because she doesn't show up to the field and do what she's supposed to do. She would have shown up to the field and she would have stood on the edges, right? And as the paid workers who were working for the, the landowner as they would do their work and as if they left the portions they were supposed to, the poor and the foreigners would be on the edge and then they would start getting the little bit of leftovers. She doesn't do that. She goes right up to the foreman and says, hey, I want to glean behind your harvesters. <laughs> so we don't know if she is just naive or if she's being greedy. We don't know. But she's not following what she's supposed to do. And the foreman, as he relays this to Boaz, he relays it with frustration. She wants, she said that she wants to come right up behind your workers and, and get what they're dropping, which was not the rules. What does Boaz say? Let her do it. And don't say a word to her about it. Not only don't harass her with regards to physical danger, which even Naomi was scared about, that, that she could end up in a field, and if it's the field of a bad man, where even Ruth said, I, I hope to end up in a field of a gracious man, that there was, there was the, 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 the possibility that she would end up in a field that did not belong to a good man, and the result is that she could be harmed physically in multiple ways. But as the text says, by sheer luck, she ended up in the field that belonged to the noble man who was in the family lineage of her father-in-law. Now, literally in the Hebrew, it says, her chance chanced upon the field. <laughs> it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be outrageous. And... It doesn't just say that her chance chanced upon the field. It then goes on to say, and what do you know? 
Guess who actually showed up to the field at the time when she was there? The one who owns it, who would not have typically shown up to the field. He has hired the workers to work the field. He is going to, as a man of wealth and nobility, he's going to stay home and let the workers do their thing. But as it just so happens, as a matter of luck, what Naomi and Ruth need and what they have prayed for, God provides in the person and presence of Boaz. He shows up. And then he lives up to what they prayed for. He's a good, gracious man who protects her and provides for her beyond just the the, the little bit that the law required. And he at first says, let her her glean right there. And as y'all are dropping stuff, if she picks it up, you don't say a word. Now, in another field, what would happen is the worker would assault that person because that person would be considered stealing. And he says, let her do it. And then he says to her, and besides that, it's going to get hot today. And and the water that the men have drawn in order to have for them to drink, if you get thirsty, you go take some of their water. Now, this is huge. In the, day, in the culture here, she should have been required as the foreign woman to draw water for them. And only after they had what they were satisfied with, may, you know, she might get something of the leftovers. Instead, the men have drawn water, and Boaz tells her, help yourself to what they drew. <laughs> and then... Knowing she's poor and she has nothing, which is why she's gone to glean in the field, it's lunchtime. And he says to her, come here, come here, come here, come here. Once again, she should have stayed over on the edge, away from all the workers, away from all that's going on. Instead, he has let her glean right behind them. And now at lunch, he says, come here, come here, come here. And he starts giving her food. And the text in the Hebrew goes out of its way to say that he served her some of his food. Once again, culturally mind-blowing. As the foreign woman, if she should have done anything in this setting, it's either not be present or she should have been giving, you know, serving him. Instead, the noble, rich, wealthy man of influence who owns the field is serving her from his plate. He's giving her, telling her, take the bread I give you and dip it in the sour wine. I'm going to take the roasted grain that I've made for me, and I'm going to share it with you. She is a foreign woman, has no right to any of this stuff, and he will not eat in a way that's different than her. He's providing for her, and he's giving her from his very plate. And then, all right, so all of this is huge. But then, what she doesn't know is after long. He goes back to his foreman. He goes back to the men and he says this. Not only do you let her glean right there, I want you to start cutting stuff down for her and leave it there so that she doesn't even have to do the work of cutting it down. Do you see what's going on? One blessing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. This is not what the law required. This is what compassion and generosity embodied 
in a noble man looks like. And what we are seeing here, beloved, is that in this man, in this guy named Boaz, what we are finding is those characteristics that we talked about last week from Deuteronomy 17 about what the coming king would need to look like and how he was to behave, what he was to do and why he was to do it. We see it all embodied in Boaz. And the question comes, is this the king? Is this the noble, royal king that we've been looking for and that we are expecting? I mean, look at how he seems to know the law. Look at how he lives out the law. And look how his grace goes further than the law. Where he even prays and blesses her. That may the Lord bless her as he takes the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And he says to her, I've seen what you've done. I've seen how you've served your mother-in-law. I see how you're serving Israel. And as God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, those who bless you, I will bless. And he's helping her understand that in what she has done, she has taken the steps to be drawn into the life and the love and the ministry of the covenant. And he's letting her know, this is who you are now. And so here are the blessings that you get because of who you now are. All of this, presence, provision, protection, all of this, this loyalty, this covenant blessing, all of this is summed up in the Hebrew word chesed. And when Ruth returns to Naomi at the end of the chapter, and Naomi says, praise be the Lord, he has not let his chesed leave the living or the dead. You see, the chesed of Yahweh is embodied in the person, the words, and the activities of Boaz. And so the shelter that this foreign woman needs and the shelter that a a widow needs is being found under the wings, Boaz says, of Yahweh. But those wings of Yahweh aren't ideas. They are embodied realities in what Boaz is doing, both in terms of what she knows about and especially even in the blessings that she is not yet aware. Can anything good come from the house of Bethlehem? Well, indeed, there is a good noble man there that is embodying the chesed of the covenant. But his role is not to be the coming king. His role is to become the great-grandfather of the coming king as David would be born from the lineage of Boaz. And as Naomi needs her own redeemer, she finds that in the child that is born. And as the nation needs a redeemer king, they will find that in the grandson of the child that is born as David would come onto the scene. 
and as the nations need a king and savior that is promised in Genesis 3.15, we would receive that as David's greater son would break into this world and be named Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who gave up all the glory and riches of the heavenly places to be born in the humility of flesh and servitude. The one who was rich beyond all splendor and yet chose to give that up to give you and me who are poor to give us all the blessings of the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And all of this, beloved, Because a good man followed the law, not perfectly, but still followed the law and went beyond the law with compassion, with kindness, and with generosity that was culturally unspeakable and theologically didn't make any sense. And the reason in Advent that we celebrate the God who has come near through what seems to be small and lowly and little and trivial and insignificant is because you and I receive our blessings from God in that way. And we receive these blessings so that we can bless others. And so this Advent, there is going to be times to celebrate and rejoice the gifts that God has blessed us with in Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate them, it is to help cultivate within us entering into the rhythm of the generosity of God in Jesus Christ in the way that we give Christ to the world and not just simply in good ideas, but in embodied Chesed, as we give to the poor, as we say kind words to people who are depressed during the holiday season, as we extend hope to those who are, who are, are, are caught up and who, who are muddled up in fear, and as we speak of the salvation that is found in a baby, a baby who was willing to die and to be raised, who was willing to be humiliated so that we could share in his exaltation, a baby that was willing to suffer so that through his suffering, you and I could receive covenant blessing forevermore. This is what we are reflecting on, beloved. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. It's not just simply that there is a rekindled love for Ruth here. What we find is that God is protecting his promise and he is going to bring that promised child into this world. And through that child, he is going to accomplish all of his eternal purposes and plans as he constrains the new heavens and the new earth through our humble King who will return in glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us this morning as your people to not be distracted by all the fun things 
that are part of this season, but through the fun things to, to realize that there is a God to be delighted in. That through the fun things of the season, there is a greater joy to experience in our God and in His gifts. And so, Lord, protect us from wanting to pit the two against one another. And forgive us, Lord, for those times in in which we, we don't hold together the simple and ordinary and hidden ways in which you act and you do things. But instead, help us to look for you in those hidden things, in those ordinary things, in those mundane things. Because where you are hidden, you are active. And where you are active, you are trustworthy. And so, Lord, help us to celebrate the ordinary and help us to rejoice in the mundane as we, in finding our joy there, open ourselves to living a mundane life as a conduit of your hidden presence power, provision, and protection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.